It's time for another Waterproof Records with me, your host, Jacob Givens. So today, it's time to talk about Weezer, the Blue Album. Today's episode is recorded at Believe Limited in Silver Lake, California. Believe specializes in entertainment that affects change and is responsible for various forms of content, including feature films, documentaries, and podcasts, much like this one. You can check out their work at BelieveLTD.com. Believe Limited, we do special things. Yes, I gave you that little preamble before the show began because if you're watching this episode, you'll see... Hang on a second. Jacob's not on a Zoom call. He's sitting in this really cool space right now, and that's exactly what's going on. I'm in a sweet space, and uh, I'm having a great time, and I think that uh, exciting things could be on the horizon. So today, you can see we've had a string of guests for the last several episodes, but as I'm getting this podcast off the ground, you know, a lot of people have been like, I love the show, but there are these big gaps in between. And that's been one of the most difficult things is, you know, when you're a music fan, you could sit there and talk about albums forever. And then I got excited because I started having more and more guests on the show. But as a show starts to launch, if you don't have them batched and ready to go, you're going to be like, "Uh oh, I have nothing to air this week. So hopefully we'll start getting that under control and start having more and more guests. But even when I don't have guests, I've started talking about, uh, you know, having some regular people return, maybe having some conversations that we have on the show. But We'll explore that. And I'm just glad to have you guys so far. Obviously, uh, there's been a lot of great support and people reaching out about Waterproof Records. And it's a thrill to be at uh, Believe Limited. This is, a, this is an awesome place. And I'm excited about what they're doing. And I just want to be a part of it somehow. So glad you're with me. But today, like I said, we're going to talk about Weezer's Blue Album. And you have to know about this album. You have to. If you're listening to this show, that is an unmissable album of the 90s that is like there's no way you could have gone through that decade without seeing that bright blue cover looking at you with those four guys in the front and let me tell you a little bit about the time that it came out first of all if you're watching you'll see that i'm wearing um, a sweater, one that I have nicknamed my Freddy Krueger sweater. It's actually blue and red stripes, so it doesn't have green, so it's a little different, but it totally looks like Krueger's sweater. But when I put it on this morning, I was like, one, it's perfect because I'm doing an episode on Weezer, and you gotta wear a sweater to talk about the sweater song. Um, but the the funny story behind this sweater is I was it was Christmas time, and I was with my family, which I hadn't seen in a while, and my mom holds up this sweater, and she goes, do you want this? And I go, Freddy Krueger? Hell yeah, I do. And she goes, your brother said the same thing when I showed it to him. And he, the Freddy Krueger aspect, he didn't want it because of the stripes. But I was like, give it to me. This guy wants to wear it. <laughs> so there you go. That's my sweater story. Let's not come undone. Let's get back to the blue album. The state of the, of the music scene when this album came out, you know, this is 1994 that it releases. I think it's May. And they, they, we were in the thick of grunge and grunge had this coolness, 
this, you know, <laughs> there was this kind of like, I'm on the other side of the cig- the track smoking my cigarette and I don't like those popular kids and I'm kind of a badass and maybe I'm getting into some trouble. And so I was a dweeby kid, you guys. Obviously, you figured that out. I emote so much. I'm very, very expressive. But I was not cool by any means. Um, I loved cool music, but I was not a cool kid. I, I landed in theater. Um and, uh, you know, that was the funniest thing about this era. I can't remember if I've ever said this on the on the podcast before, but I when I was a teenager, I really got along well with my parents. I really did. I they were supportive of me. They loved the fact that I played guitar. Um, they were really supportive. And I was hanging around with all these alternative grunge kids. And they were always like, yeah, man, fuck my dad. He's a dick. <laughs> I would always be like. Um, my dad's actually really cool. He dropped me off to hang out at the mall with you and, and gave me 10 bucks and he's going to pick me up later. And I, it was always, it always made me feel like I don't quite match this angry at the world music that I was listening to at the time. And then along comes Weezer, you guys, along comes this band of dorks of regular dudes glasses bowl cuts sweaters uh butterfly collar shirts and just kind of there was this look about them that you immediately felt like a hey they're like me and you start hearing the songs or talking about you know liking a girl and playing D and listening to kiss records in their garage and being alone and it was really exactly what the nineties needed at that time. You needed to have somebody come along and be like, you know what? It's okay to not be mad at the world all the time. And it's okay to feel, um, a sense of isolation and aloneness, but not in this. I'm pissed at everybody. You know, sometimes you can just have the sads. That's okay. And you don't have to be in the cure sads. You can be somewhere in between. So it came along at the perfect time. And uh, I remember when I when I first heard the sweater song, I think my brother and I were watching 120 minutes and there's this great music video. You know, it starts out the camera lens is coming in on the sound space and it's going in upside down and then it turns around and then they're in that stage that very much matches that front cover, that blue background and we're moving around it and you can see they're just having fun by the end of the, the video they're not even trying to play their instruments they're clowning around dogs are running through and you could just sense there was like this fun energy to this this band and you felt this immediate at least for me i was like i get these guys these guys are a lot like me like i could be in a band right now and i'm one of these while everybody else in the band is is cool you know and so it really had this appeal, the the sweater song coming undone, this kind of visual metaphor. And so right away, I wanted to get the record. I wanted to get the album. And I remember being in the car and my mom hearing me play this song. And she was like, that's dumb. This guy's just singing about his clothes. And I was like, you don't get, you don't get it, mom. <laughs> it was perfect. It worked great. But, it, you know, one thing that's so special about this record is the sound of it those distorted guitars are like you know I, I think i remember reading somewhere that they went into the recording studio thinking of the guitars and the bass as a 10 stringed instrument that would play in unison that that was the plan and you can really hear it the distortion is thick and strong and it's very well produced and 
they move together with each riff and each chord change. It's like they're just in sync with each other. And then Rivers Cuomo has these vocals that are, you know, I know with uh, songs like Buddy Holly on the album, you think doo-woppy 1950s, but it did have this Beach Boys pop great hooks but then with this incredibly distorted guitar clearly you you know if you know gear you're like somebody's using an orange amp <laughs> you know that was like that was the sound of that that orange amp which i i still want one of those so bad orange if you ever hear this episode please send me an amp um but anyway uh such a fun record and the story behind this band coming together you know rivers i believe had moved to Los Angeles from Connecticut in the late 1980s and been in a string of bands and then, you know, moved in with, with Pat Wilson and then they meet Matt Sharp and they're jamming together. And I think that during this time in the early nineties, it was really hard, you know, when they were making music, people were like really only focused on that grunge sound and not interested in the kind of the, the, the music that they were making at the time. And from what I know of their story, Rivers was getting a little bit frustrated with this whole journey. And by the time they make the the kitchen tape, which is, I think, in 1992, um, 1992, the kitchen tape, that's like their earliest first demo, um, which it's called that. It's called the kitchen tape because they recorded in, a, in an apartment. I think it was um, it was Pat Pat Wilson's apartment and they recorded the drums in the kitchen. And so it got the name of the kitchen tape, but it had eight songs on it, five of which end up on the the blue album. I'm, I'm pretty sure. And then they uh, that's really what started to change things. And at the time, Matt Sharp, who was their bass player, he was kind of given the directive um, from Rivers. You know, you have until the end of the year to get us a record deal or I'm going to I'm going to college. I think it was Berkeley or something. And um you could hear in that frustration, this early twenties, like maybe I won't pursue this dream after all. And then, you know, that, that album, the, the kitchen tapes, uh, gets, gets in the DGC hands, which is Geffen. And then next thing, you know, they're going to New York and they're recording at electric Ladyland studios with Rick Ocasek of the cars. I mean, there's some, you can go onto YouTube and you can go back and you can look at some of this home video footage, of um of that time period it's all very handheld i mean if you think those those um those found footage movies make you nauseous i watched like 15 20 minutes of this footage and i was like oh geez thank god for image stabilization you know because it was just so (laughs) so disorienting but you can watch they're just like a bunch of kids they're like 22 years old and they're in electric ladyland studios with rick okasic and and at the time rivers doesn't even have his you know famous blue guitar that he still plays to this t- to, to this day so he records all the guitar parts with with vintage guitars that were provided by rick okasic these are like his classic guitars so i thought that was a really really interesting thing you know here's a a band so early in its infancy that they're they're cutting this landmark record on album i mean on on guitars that belong to um to rick okasic side note for a short period of my life i did play on a guitar that david byrne used for like eight years that was a cool moment in my life i had this friend that i used to write with and i i didn't have an electric guitar at the time and he said Oh, I have this Fender Stratocaster laying around my house that's never getting played. 
and I, I borrowed it. And then after I'd had it for a little while, he was like, by the way, that, that guitar went on the road with Rick Byrne for like, uh, you know, a couple of years. And I was like, Oh, holy shit. <laughs> so I always thought that was really, really cool. I had to give it back. I didn't get to keep it, but back to Weezer. Um, they, they're in this space. And oh, if you know about the band's history, you know, there's been a little bit of a lineup change. I mean, you know, that, um, in the early days when they're first starting out, it's Rivers Cuomo, it's Jason Cropper, it's um, Pat Wilson, and it's Matt Sharp. And you realize that how did suddenly, you know, before the album even drops, how is Jason Cropper out of there? And how are we switching over to, you know, another, to, to Brian Bell? How did we, how did that happen? And from what I understand, and actually this resonates for me in a lot of ways uh, because of people that I knew in my 20s. Um, apparently Jason Cropper right around the time found out that his girlfriend, uh, soon to be wife was pregnant. And, you know, I was reading some of the stories about it and they would talk about, they would be in the studio trying to get this thing off the ground. And, you know, allegedly Jason would go up on the roof of the studio and just be like screaming, crying and, you know, emotional about the whole thing. And they Rivers had said, you know, while we're while we're recording this, I don't want anybody's girlfriends coming in to the to the studio and hanging out. You know, we've got to avoid the Yoko situation here. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's not what he said. But if you watch the Beatles Get Back documentary, you can see uh, that that was definitely something that probably started there and just continued with every band. They were like, man, I don't want to be, I don't want to lose focus or have any drama starting the band because I start bringing my significant other around. So we had this policy and you know, the, the, I think her name was Amy Wellner. I think that's her name. I could definitely look on my iPad right now, but it's neither here nor there. She comes in unannounced. She has no place to stay. So there's all these kind of things that are going wrong with the drama. And I personally had close, close friends in my younger years that faced pregnancies un you know unplanned pregnancies that came out of nowhere and it fucks you up if you're not ready for it I, I i think that even if you are ready for it the idea of your life shifting so dramatically is a very very um powerful and disruptive idea for a lot of people and so when i heard that that's what he was going through i was like well no shit he was on the rooftop screaming and shouting because here's this guy in this in this stage in his life probably not even thinking he's remotely ready to be a father a parent and whether whatever the options were presented to him at the time he probably felt a lot of things and it's a it's a rough time to be going through that when you're also on on demand and and so apparently rivers had to make the hard decision to say before this album comes out uh, we, he's got to go. We, this is the, there's tension start starting the band. There's, there's conflict. It's causing the civility of the way that we work together to be threatened. And, you know, you hear this and you may go, Oh, rivers, you dick, you know, here's a friend of yours is going through a crisis. And yeah, you know what, that, that is a, that's a tough move. But I think a lot of times in life, you're presented these moments, you know, here's somebody like Rivers Cuomo and the other band members who'd worked very hard to get to Electric Ladyland and they're looking at Rick Ocasek and they have this opportunity with Geffen and they have a label and they could see that just this one variable could, hey, it could unravel the sweater and uh, and they he had to make the hard decision. And I'll have you know 
that Jason Cropper went on to marry that woman, have more children. They divorced later, but hey, made that choice. And he got into music as well. And in 2014, he officially said somewhere, Rivers made the right call. He made the right decision. So I want you to rest assured, rest assured that uh, that Jason himself came out and said, you know, while it probably took a good decade or so to get to that peace within himself, he said he made the right call. I, you know, he probably saw I would have derailed that project so bad if I stayed with the band and he was okay with it. And now to this day, apparently in 2020 during the pandemic, they were doing like, you know, Zoom live stream shows and partnering together and he'd even gotten a writing credit on the latest record. So they had whatever hatchet there was, they buried it and they seemed to be okay. But I thought that was interesting. So then they get Brian Bell in the band and, you know, we won't get into any of the stuff about Matt Sharp. That's a whole different Oprah. And that doesn't happen until post Pinkerton. And we're not going to talk about Pinkerton today. We're going to talk about the blue album, um, which has just been given that name, right? When the album came out, this was also an interesting choice, which was Weezer puts out an album, a new band, a new band. No, nobody knows who they are. And their album has no name. It's just the color blue. How rad is that? You know, I mean, sure. The Beatles had the white album. Sure. Metallica had done the black album in 91, but it, those were well-established bands. You know what I mean? Those were household names that Metallica was very famous in 1991 and the Beatles. I don't even have to tell you. Um, So to be this brand new band that comes out with four dorks. And I mean that as a compliment. I mean, four dorks as a compliment. I looked exactly I looked exactly like they do on that cover. That's how I was dressed in the 90s. I I, I, uh, I may have had my flannel and, you know, my torn jeans a little bit, but uh, I, my mom wouldn't buy me Doc Martens. They cost an arm and a leg. I couldn't get them, you know, and y- if you walked around the Doc Martens, they were the, the black boots and you can always tell the real ones had that yellow thread around them. And I, you know, I, I couldn't afford the regular uh, Doc Martens, but the, the dweeby clothes, you could go. You could go to Goodwill, you could go to Salvation Army, and you could get some awesome looking, you know, kind of cheesy 70s, 80s type uh, clothes. I loved that stuff. As you guys know, I was into the Smashing Pumpkins so much back then, and I still am. But back before Billy shaved his head and wore the silver pants, he was wearing like psychedelic 70s clothes. And so there was a period there where all I was buying were, you know, butterfly collar 70s shirts with flowers on them. Um, I went to my, went to my homecoming dance in a leisure suit. So yeah, man, Weezer was the band for me. Um, where was I? Gosh, I li- you know, this is, this is what happens when you have just Jacob on his own. He just, his brain just starts to go into 800 different directions. And I remember in my earlier episodes where I'd be talking about pixies or smashing pumpkins or just talking about records on my own. And this is like, what's going on in my brain. I'm just going like, blah, 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 blah. So we'll try to get back. Okay. Um, we talked a little bit about the, the you know Brian Bells and the band, but let's talk a little bit about how this record opens. It opens. I mean, I remember popping in this 94. So it would have been a CD. I, I had moved on to CDs by 94 popping in the CD and that acoustic guitar, that pluck starts out that first song. My name is Jonas. And, you know, you're at first, you're like, you're like hitting play and you're like, wait, what? This is the sweater band. And then here comes, <laughs> here comes the riff. And you're like, yes, 
arms raised in victory. This is exactly what I paid for. This is what I wanted. I wanted that sound. That opening guitar part uh, was credited to Jason Cropper, and that's the credit he gets on that record. Um, so he wrote that opening part, but that riff kicks in, and away we go, and we're in Weezerland. And, you know, they were kind of famously known for these quick run times because they're writing these hooky poppy songs with this really great guitar and you'd be in and out so the blue album was like you could start it and then i don't even know exactly what the runtime is on this album but oh it says it right now 41 minutes it's not too short but geez it's like sitting down to a good episode of tv and then you're done but my name is jonas apparently is about his uh river's brother was in a car accident during his time in college and the insurance companies were really really uh, beating the shit out of him and making his life miserable. And boy, is that something that still rings true to this day in the American healthcare system? Not to get on a tangent, but it's true. Um, but that, uh, apparently that's kind of the, um, the inspiration behind that song. But wow, what an opener. What an opener. <laughs> Choo-choo, chains left right on time. Um, the workers are going home. I think now that song, despite whatever its meaning is, I, I hope that everybody plays it on their Fridays. You know, when they're getting in their car, the workers are going home. It's the weekend. It's time to go. Um, the, the the album has so many shining moments for me, and I, I could go track by track, but let's just talk about kind of, you know, No One Else is an amazing song. Um, the World Has Turned and Left Me Here is an amazing song. It really... That's oh god! That's, I, I love every song in this album. There's this is a this is a no skips record for sure. I I can look at it right now and say there's not a song in this album that I skip. Um, but when you get to you know some of the big singles, Undone, the Sweater Song, um, that was obviously the one that launched them into the mainstream, and everybody saw the the Sweater Song video. And then we have some of the other singles like Say It Ain't So, and um, and of course the iconic Buddy Holly. Um, the video for Say It Ain't So, I believe, was filmed in Matt Sharp's real garage, and you can tell. Um, and that's got kind of a more indie rock, uh, you know, sci- how the things were at the, uh, for the band at that time. That's the look of that video if you've never seen it before. Um, I love the song Say It Ain't So. It's a wonderful song. Um, and then Buddy Holly, I would say if you hadn't heard about Weezer by the time Sweater Song or Say It Ain't So came out, by the time Buddy Holly came out, that's it. That's probably the moment that if you were even on the sidelines or heard of this band being whispered about, you found out about him and Buddy Holly because you couldn't escape the fact that this video, this music video directed by Spike Jones, took MTV by storm. And really, it was such a crazy idea that when Spike Jones pitched it to the band, I think Matt Sharp was quoted as saying, uh, sure, you can try it, but I don't think it's going to work. Like, this is a crazy idea to take our band and put it in a classic television show. Um, if you've never seen the video, I will allow you to stop my podcast right now and you should go watch it. You should. You should go to YouTube and watch it because... It is a very memorable, very special video because at the time, nobody had done anything like this, or at least that I know about. I mean, if you're a film and TV buff, you might be like, oh, well, 
John St. Pierre did it 10 years earlier in France. Um, but I had never seen anything like this. He took Happy Days, the classic television show Happy Days, and he inserted the band in that scenario in such a clever way. You know, he got the um, he got the uh, Al to come in, Al from the show, actually to come in and make a cameo um, and say the opening line. He said, that, you know, now Kenosha, Kenosha, Wisconsin's very own Weezer, which I think that was where he was from. But he's in it, and then you have they're in the they're in the space, and we're cutting between classic footage of of the TV show. We've got scenes with the Fonz, you know. We have um, Ron Howard in there. We have all these, you know. It's amazing. And then they have these, you know, uh, actors subbing in for the back of the Fonz. So we, we just really feel. I believe they came out and said there was really no. Uh, computer graphics used it was all just really clever camera tricks and angles and whatnot to make it all come together but it's such a fun video um and it it hits mtv and just i mean the doors start blown down because people are looking at this really cool unique concept that shows weezer which has this very 1950s very beach boys um doo-woppy sound in this song and the funny thing about buddy holly is that song I read that Rivers was had written it and he didn't want to put it on the blue album. He didn't because in his lyrics, it was really one of the first times that he was being critical of his own bandmates in a song. And apparently he had a, a platonic relationship with an Asian uh, female. And I think maybe he thought they were more than just friends, but they were giving him a hard time about her. And then that's that line. <laughs> my homies dissing my girl. And uh, he was being critical of them razzing her and giving her a hard time and, and, and making fun of this relationship or, or whether it was not a relationship. And that's what was the joke. But he wrote that. And then his original lyrics for the songs were, Ooh, you, you look just like Ginger Rogers. And then he said, Oh, oh and I move like Fred Astaire. That was his original uh, lyrical phrase and then he, he landed on buddy holly mary tyler moore and those are interesting things because those are two people of that era you know the 1960s and then and then buddy holly passes on and then there's mary tyler moore who takes tv these are two kind of iconic people that have nothing to do with each other so maybe even on a subconscious level this relationship that he was writing about he knew that while they are these iconic beings in his mind, they have no crossover. You know, there's no real connection between um, Buddy Holly and Mary Tyler Moore, but he didn't want to put it on the record. And Rick Ocasek was like, okay, I understand, but let's record it because it's great. And if you hate it, we won't put it on the record, but he was like, let's just record it. He was very insistent um, that they do it. And uh, apparently there were post-it notes written around um, the studio that said, we need buddy Holly. So it was really this, this song, how funny that this song that I, I think probably changed everything for the band um, was almost not on the record because he didn't want to include it. Um, but it, it is, it's an iconic song. Maybe it got played to death a little bit for a while there. Uh, I still request it when I do karaoke from time to time. So I still love to sing it, but, um, you know, the, back then the radio would definitely play something to death or MTV play something to death. But, um, the song also was included. The video was included on the windows 95 CD ROM. I don't know if you remember that. 
Um, somebody reminded me of that. I wasn't really that big into computers in that time in my life, but they said it was on the CD-ROM. And I mean, come on. Everybody who gets Windows 95 is going to see the Buddy Holly video. Yeah. That pretty much secured them to be one of the biggest bands to come out of the 90s. It's still rocking to this day. And I still really appreciate um, so much of their music. And I've been fortunate enough to see them live. Um, but before we wrap this up, because, uh, you know, I think we've we've covered. I mean, you've got you've got some amazing songs. Surf Wax America, always one of my favorites on there. That definitely has that. I'm in love. He was living in Santa Monica at the time and had that beach culture that reminded me of the Beach Boys. I love that song so much. Um, in the garage. Oh man, is there is there more of a of a I'm a you know he's reading Kitty Kitty Pride, Nightcrawler, listening to Ace Freely. He's safe in his little space. Boy, was there something you could identify with back then um, about feeling like. I feel comforted by the things that I love. I'm surrounded by comic books or albums or, you know, old VHS horror movies, if you will, <laughs> you know, just whatever brought you comfort. And that was such a specific thing. And and I want to say something to all the people who have been following me on social media. I get a comment. A lot of times they say things like, I always thought that I had unique music taste and now I see that this isn't true. Or now I always thought I had a unique teenage experience and now I see that I was wrong and that it was, it's exactly like yours. And I want to say something because I think people are giving themselves a hard time. Like, Oh, it's just so cliche. I don't think that's the case at all. We grew up in a time where there's no internet. There's no social media. There's really no place. So there's millions and millions and millions and millions of people billions of people in the world and we're all just kind of going to school and dealing with the same shit every day the the social circle circles do they like me do i like them am i getting a boner in class you know all these things you're just trying to get through your day without losing your mind and there was really no way of knowing are there others out there like me and if of course there are of course there are and now kids can grow up and say i i know that there are a million people that do exactly or like exactly what i like i know it so really all we're doing now when we talk about weezer sitting in your garage and loving comic books and your 12-sided die and playing dnd and if you're thinking to yourself like, oh, I guess I, I guess I had the exact same experience, so it doesn't make me special. No, you are special. You are. We are special together. We just didn't have the luxury of knowing that we weren't alone. And um, you know what? I think it's probably better that we had the experience that way. I, I wouldn't trade it. I wouldn't trade it. Um, because I think that the friendships that I made along the way, the people that I would meet, I, there was a, um, I think I probably say this quote all the time. Kurt Cobain says on, in utero, he says, um, I miss the comfort in being sad. And there is a thing that has to happen in your development. And that is feeling like you're on your own. I, I think so. And you know, I'm not growing up in today's era, so maybe you can you can feel connected to, to the world and, and still feel 
completely alone. I think I've actually heard that sentiment said before where you could literally have contact with hundreds, if not thousands of people and feel like you're connected to everyone yet feel disconnected and feel isolated and alone. But there was something about having a band, having an album, sitting down and feeling like it was just for you that they were, that these songs were just speaking to you. What a, what a powerful feeling that was. And I hope through this show, through younger people that are learning about Weezer, learning about some of these bands or listening to bands today that you can hold on to the feeling that, that a song should feel like it was written for you or that that lyric is specifically talking to something that connects to your emotional experience of life. I think that that's, that's what music's for. You know, it's, it's supposed to be personal. It's supposed to be a personal boy. This is me hearkening back to my super religious days where it's like, you should have a personal relationship with God. I think you should have a personal relationship with your music. That's what I think. I think you should have a personal relationship with your music. And anyway, boy, oh boy, I did it again. You guys, I just get into these little moments where I start talking and I, you look, you can totally tell I'm a, I'm a father now. Right. I just want to, I just want to take all of y'all and just say, we're going to be okay. You're going to be okay. Um, I think I've pretty much covered everything that I wanted to cover about the blue album. If you're curious as to whether Pinkerton or blue album are, which one's better to me. Um, I, that's a tough question. I, I think I've said before that I like Pinkerton more, but really they're just such different experiences. I'm not going to go into a review of Pinkerton on this one, but they're such different experiences, but the blue album really came along and was special for me and I remember it meaning so much and so it always will. I, I find that when people have you, you know, push you against the wall and say you gotta choose, I'm always like, I don't know, man. There's like 180 different people inside me. <laughs> I mean that from like who I feel like likes this or likes that. I, I, there's a lot of different versions of of art and entertainment that I enjoy. And some days I'm going to be like, oh, it's 100% blue. And then some days I'm going to say, oh, it's 100% Pinkerton. So I, I think that this is a pretty iconic record. If you've never heard it, please, please start here. If you're going to start the Weezer journey, you start here. And then you can start delving into other records. I'm sure you've heard a Weezer song in your life. But uh, this era, too, there were such killer b-sides and outtakes and rarities you know i love the stuff off the dgc rarities like jamie oh what a song so many more to talk about that i could go on 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 for days um but the uh weezer is a, a fantastic band great great artists um you know they've they got a lot of criticism over the years for losing their their early days magic you know, that's one of the biggest pieces of criticism that this band gets is that they can't seem to recreate the blue album or Pinkerton or, you know, maybe maybe your opinion is the green, you know, in that era. But uh, White Album is outstanding and there's so many records. There's good moments here and there on, on all of them. And I mean, I think that it's not fair to, to say you can't recreate that that thing because the guys who were at Electric Ladyland Studios with Rick Ocasek at 22 are just different people and your view and your feeling of what you're experiencing in life, your love, you've got your 
you know, you've got your guitarist screaming on the roof because his girlfriend's pregnant. You've got, you know, all you're playing on vintage guitars that belong to Rick Ocasek from the cars. There's a lot of variables there that are really going to influence the kind of art you're going to be putting out. So if people in 2007 were like, well, it's no blue album. Well, of course it's not. Were you crazy? Every piece of art we do is, is, is part of those different versions of ourselves that emerge and change and grow. So I think everybody just uh, deserves a little bit more grace and patience as we put the things uh, that we create out into the world. First of all, it takes balls to do that. So, you know, if you're if you're standing on the sidelines going like, well, that album sucked. Well, what are you up to? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, what are, what are you doing with your time? So anyway, my two cents. Anyway, um, you guys, this has been amazing. We're going to wrap it right there. Weezer album, Blue Album, 1994, classic, crank it. Um, it's definitely a good, fun 90s album that has pop and rock and goes up and goes down and takes you through all of it. And I, I love this band. I'm still a huge Weezer fan to this day. So thanks for joining me for this Waterproof Records. And uh, thank you so much to Believe Limited. Happy to be here and we'll see you next time. <laughs>